Hello, my name is John Brink and this is uh, On The Brink from downtown Prince George. And a beautiful day in Prince George. Uh, it's, it's moving towards the spring. And today we have a very, very sp uh, special guest. Her name is Catherine Pennington. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. And Catherine has an amazing background and, and very diverse in many, many areas. So tell us a little bit about where were you born or where are you from? So I'm originally from a really small community uh, in north central Saskatchewan called Duck Lake. And when I say small, I mean small. There's 500 people in it. I think there's still 500 people in it today. Um, and, you know, I often say people tell me, oh, I'm from a small community or a small town. And I always think, try me. Uh, I might, I might one up you on the small community of 500 yeah. people, but uh, that's where I grew up with. It's a small town in Saskatchewan. Yeah. And, and it was called Duck Lake? Duck Lake, Saskatchewan. Duck, Duck Lake, Saskatchewan. And, and then, so you grew up there, you went to school. Did the, what, were the schools then close by or what, did you have to travel to? Got no, close. it's a, I mean, it's a pretty small place. So, yeah. you know, pretty small community schools there. So I went to school in uh, the community of Duck Lake. And then I also went to school outside of Duck Lake, um, yeah. in Prince Albert and Regina. So I grew up all over really the province of Saskatchewan. And I moved um, for university. I went to college in Alberta. And then I eventually finished my undergraduate degree at UVic. So went did you know did did a bit of movement around Western Canada in uh, in my younger years. So, so then uh, as you grew up in Duck Lake, you did your lower classes there, and then from there on in, you went to college in. I went to college in Red Deer. Actually, Red Deer. I well, there's a bit of a I mean the the story behind all of this. Okay, right? yeah. So when when I actually when I was growing up um, and going to elementary school, yeah. Uh, I was diagnosed with a learning disability um, in oh. probably in and around, I'm going to say like the probably the early 1980s. And that was really formulative for me because the learning disability, um, as we all know, has a real impact, right, on what you believe so about what, yourself. But, uh, I was diagnosed with dyslexia in the early 1980s. It, now, it, I now know that it probably wasn't dyslexia. It was, probably was a different kind of you know, learning disability. But like it, what? Well, I think now it's probably actually more of a math-specific disability. So at the time, there was sort of blanket, um, blanket diagnosis. It was really early in the diagnosis of learning disabilities and really understanding and, them. And you say dyslexia, correct me if I'm wrong, that is when you have a difficulty kind of creating the, the words together and form sentences? Yeah, that's right. So there's actually a multitude of learning challenges that come with the umbrella term dyslexia. And it's right. certainly not an area of my expertise, but no, no. it's an area that I know a little bit about. Well, yeah. And so um, historically, the thought was that it was more associative to reading and an inversion of words and letters. But it also affects things like pattern, um, yeah. spatial recognition, <clears throat> the ability to do puzzles. There's now actually a lot of research that, that suggests that children that have ongoing ear infections and different ear-related challenges can exhibit symptoms and signs similar wow. to dyslexia. So, so when did you conclude that it was really not dyslexia, but it was... Something well, different. you know, I, I think as my ongoing education yeah, yeah. and interest in this area yeah, has yeah. gone on, like I would say based on the research and learning that I know today, 
applying that to the situation would probably tell me that it most probably wasn't that, but it certainly was a label that was really challenging as a child, right? So I got this early learning diagnosis, really difficult to learn, really challenging. And in a really small community in the early, early to mid 1980s, there wasn't much in the way of support. I mean, some of the teachers that I had in the school that I went to had taught my father. So this is a, you know, it's a small community, not a lot of turnover, lots of wonderful things, but lots of challenges. And so learning was really tough for me. So I did go to school, um, you know, in outlying areas in different places. There were a little more support, but it was a real challenge to get through school. Recognizing the difficulty that you had in the schools in Dark Lake, mm -hmm. they send you to other locations that gave a bit more support? Or was that circumstantial? Yeah, I think it was probably more circumstantial. Okay. My, my parents um, divorced actually quite early. Okay. Um, I was probably about seven years old. And so and my, my parents divorced. And yeah. my mother and my brother and I moved into, into the city. And um, I, you know, the city. Okay, I have to clarify this. <laughs> yeah, the city. more than five hundred. I should have clarified. But it's actually the city of Prince Albert, which in many ways is very similar to Prince George. You've probably been there, you know, high degree yeah. of forestry and yeah. participation in the forest sector. Yeah. But growing up, you know, there was a little more in terms of services um, for me, yeah. which was helpful for sure, but certainly yeah. not to the same degree that we would see today. So, no. so you know, I love learning. I'm a learning fanatic. I yeah. never stop. I keep going. And anytime yeah. I can learn anything, I want to. Um, and it's just sort of baked into my DNA. But I think the reason for that, John, is that the learning was such a challenge for me. Yeah. And I think I, I mean, it was really uncertain if I was going to make it through high school, let yeah. alone through college and then yeah. eventually university and then into graduate yeah. school and advanced studies. That was never on the table. Yeah. I didn't have any belief that I could do that. No. But I How think... How did you push through that? Honestly, I think I saw the difference between... Um, the outcome of education versus the outcome of non-education. And I'm just sort of back up a little bit. Did so, you fear that? Or? Oh, well, I, th I did fear it. I did fear um, not advancing in life. I think, right. that's, I think that's fair to yeah. say. But, you know, kind of evaluating my environment, I could tell that, that an, an education was a necessity in order to be successful. Yeah. And so I think that's actually what did it was just that. And, and I also, I actually credit having to push through the learning disability and the discomfort yeah. that created a lot of personal grit. Yeah. So I think as an outcome of that and probably a lot of challenging family situations, the, the truth is that I just found a way to kind of build up that, that resolve yeah. and that determination. To can do. Yeah, to keep going. Yeah. And, and a certain amount of stigma attached as well. Yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of stigma attached. Yeah. Um, and I felt really stigmatized. And that yeah. when I kind of think about it, that's probably the genesis or the origin of any insecurities that I maybe still have today really come from that feeling of not being able to keep up or not being smart enough. Yeah. And that vulnerability. Yeah. But I also really credit those early experiences with precisely the grit that has allowed me, yeah. you know, to do the things that I've had to that are hard, that to yeah. be successful. Yeah. And I actually saw one of your episodes, you were talking to someone about a doctor who has ADHD and you were, you know, talking back and forth about it. 
and, and you know, it's very similar in that I think oftentimes the things that are the most painful and challenging for us are the very things that help elevate us, right? Yeah. And so um, I, I actually, I wouldn't say that I'm thankful for it because it was really hard, but I appreciate the gifts of it. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, and I, I, you know, something about my background is that, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, I failed grade three and, and I always say, uh, nobody fails grade three that I know. Mm. And uh, I failed grade seven three times. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and then the question was that, uh, should we send them to the mentally challenged mm -hmm. school mm -hmm. or do we get them into a job someplace so that he can at least learn to do something with his hands? And, mm -hmm. uh, so they put me into uh, becoming a furniture maker, mm -hmm. and uh, you know. So what did you think of that when, at the time? It was tough in a way, you know, because uh, you know I was born during the Second World War, mm -hmm. uh, and November nineteen forty, and then uh, you know the uh, there was uh, and it was a challenging time because mm -hmm. uh, you know my dad had been drafted into the Dutch army. Mm -hmm. And uh, for five years, they didn't know if he was dead or alive. No contact. No contact, zero. Because mm -hmm. the last time they saw him was in the bombing of Rotterdam. Okay. And uh, I had an older sister, one year older than me, and then a brother two years older, and then my mother. And uh, they had a real struggle mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis. Just because to survive. To, just to survive. Mm -hmm. And what I always talk about is that, uh, you know, that things that I remember is, uh, you know, the hunger. Mm -hmm. And still now I can remember always that mm -hmm. feeling mm -hmm. of hunger. And the other one of cold, immense cold, mm. always, you know. And then we had this little heater in one little room and we sat around it in the winter of 44, 45, but extremely cold. And the other one was anxiety, yeah, mm -hmm. with all the bombers overhead, 350 mm -hmm. planes in the air sometimes, uh, you know, day after day, day and night when they were bombing Germany. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, there was some fears fighting around us and seeing too much that we shouldn't have seen. You know, there's a, there's a lot of work that has been done in the last 10 years and, and specifically around trauma and the impacts of trauma on the body. Yeah. And I find this so fascinating. And actually, Dr. Gabor Mate, who is, uh, practices here in British Columbia, was a doctor in the downtown east side, is um, Hungarian, was born about the same time as you, similar experience. His parents actually are survivors of the Holocaust. And his work really demonstrates that when we experience trauma in our lives, it, it stays with us. And, and he, his research and his work supports um, the, the additional work uh, of another great man, uh, Bessel van der Kolk. And he talks about how the body maintains those memories and those experiences locked Amazing, inside. Amazing, isn't So it? when you're talking about that feeling of cold or that feeling of hunger, it's in your all, body, it's always, always there. Stays there. The other part happened is that uh, my brother was two years older than me. And, uh, you know, when I failed grade seven and they had to find a job for me and uh, my dad had a friend that had a, a furniture factory, so they uh, got me a job there. And then uh, over the weekend I had to go and get uh, uh, coveralls 
and uh, so we went down to the coverall store and uh, in closing store and they got coveralls they didn't even have the sizes that fitted me so I had to roll them all up here and then the crotch was hanging around my knees that's modern now but not then <laughs> and and this my brother uh, it, I unfortunately he passed away two years ago mm -hmm. but uh, he, he used to be about two inches shorter or higher taller than me but in those pictures he could put his hand out and I could stand underneath his arm. Mm. So I'm, I'm positive that the effects of the anxiety of all the things that happened around you in the early years mm -hmm. affected your body in terms of how you developed as a mm -hmm. young person at the same time. And, uh, you know, so, uh, and then years and years later, uh, I found out, uh, here in Prince George, actually, I was in a store and I read a book. I don't read many books, and I saw this book, Driven by Distraction. Oh, yeah. And I started looking at it. That's Gabor Mate's work, that AD, I'm talking about, yeah. ADHD. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I looked at it and I said, that's me. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote in the book in Dutch. Now, finally, I know who I am. Mm. Yeah. That must have been like such a feeling. I was 50, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it. And then from there on in, obviously, mm -hmm. I started looking at uh, uh, on the computer and, and kind of researching more mm -hmm. and looking at the checklist. Mm -hmm. And out of 20 questions uh, to do a self-analysis, is I had 19 of them. And oh, the wow. 20th one was uh, impulsivity. Mm -hmm. And I have that too, but I trained myself not to because otherwise mm -hmm. I wouldn't survive. Well, and you business. wouldn't have been as successful. And you know, what's really interesting about ADHD Recent research is showing that there's a deep correlation between people that are what we call conceptual thinkers. So in thinking styles, there's four predominant thinking styles, and they, we, we really believe that that's baked into your DNA, like you're just sort of born with these styles. But one of them is conceptual. And these are tend to be big picture people that connect systems, that, that when they're talking to someone, they're visualizing, they're thinking about how this relates to this and goes to this and then this, <laughs> yeah. and that's probably you, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that's really powerful because language defines what we think about ourselves yeah. and how we orient and behave. Yeah. And so if we can actually take something as a negative disorder, associated negative disorder, like ADHD or dyslexia or you know whatever disorder pick right. your disorder of choice you know I've had an eating disorder you can pick whatever you want right and if we can actually reorient that to you just happen to be a deeply conceptual thinker how are we going to change people's lives and children's lives from how strange are you to how smart are you and to how powerful are you absolutely yeah. and and only uh, there was always a lot of stigma attached to it uh, when uh, you know when I was 58 uh, you know it must be uh, 20 years ago so that I found that book and then uh, you know more recently in the last two three four years I've been speaking about it more in terms of uh, you know if I look at myself uh, uh, I, I was uh, honored by uh, uh, getting an honorary doctors from uh, UNBC and I did a presentation and uh, you know so uh, and I usually incorporate it into my presentations. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the war years uh, left me with PTSD. There's no mm -hmm. question no about question. that. Yeah. And then the other part, and uh, you know, that uh, I had counseling for mm -hmm. that uh, at one point when things were difficult, it was not for that particular issue, but we, mm -hmm. uh, 
in a relationship from time to time, there mm -hmm. are difficult, everything worked out fine. But mm -hmm. uh, so then we were talking to the counselor and the counselor said to me, uh, I want to talk to you, uh, you know, and my partner at that time was with me and saying uh, about some other issues. I said, okay. And, uh, and he said, uh, you know, the, I think you have an issue with the inner child. Ah. Mm -hmm. I never even heard of it, you know. So and what, what was that like for you when you heard that? Amazing. And then went into counseling. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, probably over a two-month period or so, mm -hmm. it's grueling, you know. But it was there. Mm -hmm. There was no question about mm -hmm. that, you know. Yeah. I'm really actually fascinated by that. So there's a gentleman that I follow. He's a, a professor and an author and a teacher, and his name is Terry Real, and he's out of the U.S., and I've taken some of his courses. And one of the things that Terry talks about, and he works with couples literally like on the edge, right? Yeah. People that are not going to make it. And he's yeah. an amazing couples therapist, and I use some of his techniques in my work. Yeah. But um, he talks about how we have this thing called an adaptive child. It's basically um, a child in grown-up clothing. Yeah. And so when we're growing up, we see models around us yeah. of what an adult is. Yeah. And then we emulate that. But yeah. the truth is, is that most of the adults around us are broken people. Yeah. And especially during crisis, wartime, etc. Yeah. The worst of human behavior is shown. Yeah. And so as a child, we tend to think that those are our models or they are our models. Yeah. And then when we get into relationship, predominantly in romantic or marriage or long-term yeah. relationships, yeah. that's where the child emerges. Yeah. And we, we really need that wise adult yeah. to step forward and say, I, I got it from here. Yeah. You know, you take that eight-year-old, that 10-year-old, that whatever child, whenever you were wounded, whenever yeah. it was really a tough time for you, yeah. and you step in front of them as an adult. And you say, I'll make you a deal. You yeah. stay here. Right. Because when you open your mouth, you know, the devil comes out. Exactly. Bad things come out. Yeah. But I'm going to be the adult here and I'm going to step yeah. forward. And it's amazing how when we think about that. But, yeah. you know, we're all the same person that we were when we were born. Well, exactly. When we were two, when we were 22 yeah. and 42 and 72. Yeah. So it's an adaptive process. So I'm, yeah. I'm glad you found that. Did you, were you able to use that going on in life? Oh, it's no question about that. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, and, and thinking in terms of, uh, you know, the, it was a emotionally and very grueling and mm -hmm. very intense, the counseling. Mm -hmm. But then kind of looking back at it uh, in a lot of ways, where did it uh, come from? Is substantially from being alone with a parent mm -hmm. because the dad was gone. And, and fighting on a daily basis for survival mm -hmm. of the fear, and then seeing mm -hmm. far too many dead bodies of or wounded, yeah. and uh, the fear of losing that mm -hmm. only parent that was there, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and that those kind of things. You know? Well, two things really happened there, John, and you probably would have ex you know explored this in counseling, but linking it to the work that I do, when I hear that. There's two things that are happening. One is that as a child, you're actually becoming what's called parentified, right. which means that as a child, you kind of step into the caregiver role right. because you have a, an undue responsibility in that moment right. to be a caregiver and a care provider for your mother, to be an emotional caregiver, support maybe to other family members. Right. And that's what we call parentification. Right. And there's times when that's necessary for a family to survive. There's right. no other choice. So right. I, I had an experience where my mother was single for many years. Right. 
I was older by five years, so I was really required to step in and care for my brother and act as a small mother to him. Right. But that came at a cost to me because yeah. the expectation, just as it would have been for you, yeah. was you know to be an adult very quickly and you wouldn't have had a childhood just given all that occurred. Exactly. So that's the parentification. But the other part you're talking about is just survival. So what happens to humans is um, when you are in a situation that requires a survival, Right. There's a part of the brain, it's the oldest part of the brain. Um, it lives at the brain stem, it's about the size of your thumb, probably half the size, and it's called the amygdala. Right. And that small gland, and again, I'm not a neuroscientist, and I'm not no, a medical no. doctor, but the, that small part of the brain is the oldest part of the brain, and we share it with reptiles, it's called the reptilian brain. Right. And around the brain, around that is the other more complex and adaptive structures where we do all our thinking in the neurocortex, right. We do all our feeling in the, in the limbic system. Right. But when we're under stress or strain, the amygdala um, activates. And that reptilian brain is not designed for thinking, and it's not designed for feeling, and it's certainly not designed for complex discussions or decision making. And what the amygdala does is it pumps out hormones, so cortisol, epinephrine, adrenaline, primarily cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And you need that to survive. So if you need to jump in front of a vehicle or pull someone off of you or run really fast, you want that amygdala to be working really, really well. Right. But what happens in times of acute stress, so wartime, if someone's been raped. Or continued. Or continued. Um, or there's an event or an experience, that yeah. amygdala gets activated and doesn't shut off. So it's right. constantly pumping a survival scale right. hormone into the bloodstream. Right. And so then you get a severely activated um, system. Now, this also occurs in people with acute stress. So people that are constantly working, constantly on, maybe feel a sense of wired but really tired. Right. That's also a sign that it leads to burnout. Right. But when the amygdala is activated, and we call it sometimes a hijack because something happens and you're just instantly mad or you're instantly activated. Yeah. What's occurring in that particular context is that's switching on and it's having difficulty switching off. So for you growing up in that environment, always on, acutely aware, looking around, like even to this day, I bet that you can read a room, you can read people, you can read yeah. the environment, you, you know what's going I'm on around you in the back of that. your head all the time. Yeah. Because if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have made it. So yeah. what happens to build this out is the amygdala is high, you know, activated. It's an acutely activated survival system. That's where you hear the term fight, flight, freeze. That's what the amygdala does. It's a total survival skill. Right. And interestingly, like I've worked with women who've been raped or attacked as an example. Right. And one of the hardest things for them is often, I didn't fight back. Well, they didn't fight back because the brain made a determination, you're not going to survive if you yeah. try to fight back. You need to play dead because that's, right. that's a survival. If you look in the wild kingdom, animals fight, yeah. animals run, or animals play dead. Yeah. And we do exactly the same thing. But yeah. when we live in environments of hypervigilance, yeah. then we have this sort of constant thing that happens. Yeah. It's built into us. system. It's built into us. It's hardwired. So just to build this out a little bit more, <clears throat> When we live in environments, well, we all live in environments, but when we're growing up in certain experiences in life, so for you, I can use this as, as an example because you've been so open about it. So when you live in that environment and constantly things are happening around you, you have a heightened sense of awareness, survival skills are activated, you learn coping mechanisms or survival skills just to get by. 
just to make it. Now in your case, it's very clear. You're trying to live every day and you're actually visually seeing death around you. Talk about a heightened survival sense. When you're then out of that environment, the survival skills that you learned during that time don't just go away. They're not just over. So you take those survival skills with you, but like anything, it now doesn't fit the environment that they were designed for. So it becomes dangerous to us. <clears throat> it's what's called an overdone strength. So if your survival skill is hypervigilance, constantly looking around, feeling nervous all the time, anxious, not feeling like you really trust anyone because you grew up in wartime where everything is, un you know, there's an undercurrent and you get into a personal relationship and it's really hard to have trust with someone. Yeah. Or you feel constantly on edge. Yeah. Or when you hear a plane take off, you think about the 300 planes overhead. Yeah. Then that survival skill no longer serves you. Yeah. It doesn't do you any favors. No. It starts to eat at you. Is there an right. other side to that side as well? That what I sometimes feel, I agree with all the things that you say, that you can develop that survival part in, uh, I don't know exactly how you called it, but that it gets strained to, that it makes you more. But I find a lot of times because uh, <laughs> it seems that uh, I'm, I'm a fairly high energy individual mm -hmm. all the time and all kinds of things happen all the Every day is a, a big day. I always look forward to the day. I get up at 5.30 and I'm in a, uh, you know, I get up and I'm ready to go and there are all kinds of challenges I enjoy every mm -hmm. day, but they are full of challenges. Mm -hmm. And I like that and I enjoy that. And I think that has been part of my life for my whole life, mm -hmm. like that. Well, what you're talking about is actually something we call post-traumatic growth. So you hear about post-traumatic stress syndrome. We now classify it as disorder, but post-traumatic stress syndrome or disorder. But there's post-traumatic growth, which says that for many, many people, after a very stressful time in their life, complications, near-death experience, um, or you know, really terrible upbringings or experiences, that if you are able to harness the survival skills and um, through resilience, channel whatever's inside of you, that drive, that you can actually grow from really traumatic experiences into something called post-traumatic growth. Right. And I think that's actually beautiful because yeah. we all have hardships, right? Every yeah. single human. We're talking about a very extreme example, and you would you know, share that with a generation of people, but many of us have not lived through that. But right. we have lived through alcoholic parents, you know, we have lived through poverty or we have lived through violence or personal violence or even now the last two years, the pandemic. Like I think about my kids yeah. up until two years ago, notwithstanding wartime, we had no social construct for what we were living through. No. So we all live through hardship and the goal of being a human isn't to avoid hardship because then you'd be dead. The goal is really to live through it and to grow from it. Yeah. To take what you can from that experience yeah. and channel it back in yeah. and then to do hopefully something good with it, right? Yeah. And that's what you've done. So then yeah. you feel this sense of, of um, eros for life yeah. that probably really comes from yeah. being surrounded with the reality that can be over in a second. Yeah. Interesting. And, and, and uh, so to me, it's uh, something that's very, very interesting and then... Uh, uh, kind of looking back at uh, ADHD, it has mm -hmm. become part of my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, uh, 
a year ago, two years ago now, uh, you know, I wrote a book, right? Mm-hmm. Where's yes. my book? <laughs> I read some of it on the, the internet. Yeah, and and so uh, and we and wrote another book that is coming out oh. in July, July the eighth, actually, mm-hmm. and it's about uh, uh, AD, uh, uh, ADHD. Oh, yes, and <laughs> so uh, so this is the. Uh, uh, the one uh, against all odds, which is an autobiography, and mm-hmm. uh, took me eighty years to live it, twenty <laughs> years to think about it, and two years to write it. Love and, it. And and the challenge with this was that uh, you can't write a second one and saying, "Okay, forget about that one." You know, mm-hmm. I wrote another one it's now. Like having children. It, there's only one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so and uh, you know, so then I kind of felt that I had to write about ADHD. Mm-hmm. And, and the way I look at it is, uh, it's a superpower to me. If you can unlock mm-hmm. ADHD, mm-hmm. and it gives me the ability to do things that other people cannot do, uh, you know, as well, is that I can be in a situation where I have 20 different, different issues that I'm working on, I focus mm-hmm. on one, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and uh, uh, it gives me the energy to work mm-hmm. on a lot of stuff all at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's turned out to be like your competitive advantage, perhaps. Yes. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I found uh, is that th- th- the frequency of occurrence since I started it and, and became more public about it mm-hmm. is I found out from a lot of people and say, no, uh, I don't really talk about it, but that's mm-hmm. uh, I have that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know somebody mm-hmm. in my family mm-hmm. that has that and I know other mm-hmm. people that are struggling with mm-hmm. it. So, uh, so I wanted to write a book about it. Mm-hmm. And a book not from a medical perspective. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. are plenty yeah. of those, but yeah. more from uh, you know somebody that has lived with mm-hmm. it, uh, partially knowing and from 58 forward, mm-hmm. uh, really uh, when I was 58, when I saw the book and I started reading it mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and basically saying, well, that's me, mm-hmm. uh, of applying it to my life and then really turning it into an advantage. I, I think that's a fantastic thing to do for a couple of reasons. The first is that when we tell our story and it influences others, it's so powerful because when you can talk about your experience and the fact that you've been very successful and well-known and done lots of amazing things, then anyone who might be struggling today or feeling like it's a sentence can actually see a reframe on the story, right? Story is so powerful. It's how we communicate. It's how we connect. And so to be able to use that as that opportunity, that that platform, I think means a lot. I also think that in the modern context, um, labels and diagnosis is very common. And I have two opinions on this. Like on one hand, I think the value of getting a label or a diagnosis is really important because then as a medical health or I guess a mental health practitioner, an allied health practitioner, I can really tailor the way that I support people. So if yeah. someone comes to me and says, you know, I have bipolar two disorder, which is incredibly um, common. If I'm suffering with depression, anxiety, and eating disorder, um, ADHD, any number of things, I then can really tailor what services would be best for this person, or I can pick from a modality that I've learned and then apply it. And I yeah. kind of know where to go with someone. On the other hand, 
what scares me about the frequency of diagnosis is we typically as humans live up to our labels. Yeah. And I did that. Yeah. So when I was a child diagnosed with dyslexia, learning disability, yeah. the story that I applied to myself was I'm stupid. And I yeah. lived to that I stupidity label to a T. I actually learned helplessness. That's the term for it, which is I didn't think that I could do something, so I didn't try, I didn't show up, I didn't fight for it. And then more than that, I believed that I couldn't, and so I felt helpless and I lived up to it. Yeah. And it really wasn't, you know, I mean, I suppose I got through high school. I mean, I know I got through high school, I got through high school. and kind of looked through like the college syllabus of like, what does not have math? What does not have science? Yeah. What does not have labs? And I was like, you know, education, okay, check. Like it was early childhood education at the time. I think it's called something different now. And then from there, I then went into university into social work or human and social development. And I mean, I love the field and I've never looked back. I mean, it's a beautiful field to work with. Working with yeah. people is my greatest honor. Yeah. But it actually, the genesis of it really started from this sense of being, you know, this label. So I'm very cautious with labels. I think they're great. They can inspire. And we also need to be mindful of how we then internalize that. And it becomes a limiting belief, right? When we have a label, that limiting belief can be really impactful. Yeah. You see, I had the same, uh, you know, that even from the time that I was a kid, when I failed grade three, that was not very good. And when I failed grade seven, you know, then uh, it was troubling. I turned more inward, but I was always a happy-go-lucky individual. Mm -hmm. And even then, and uh, you know, so, uh, and then, uh, you know, when I became, worked in a furniture factory, and then in the evening went to school, that was all my alley, because now mm -hmm. I could work with my hands, and mm -hmm. uh, you mm -hmm. know, and then, uh, I was drafted into the Air Force for two years when I was mm -hmm. 18 and uh, was part of uh, uh, Air Force Security and Special Forces. Actually, I don't know why, because I was still relatively small for my age. I had a brown belt in judo. Maybe that's why they thought I should be in, in that part. I wanted <laughs> to be a pilot. And uh, so, uh, and then, but, but even then still, that Holland very structured mm -hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, you have to have diplomas for all the things that you do and you're measured by, uh, you know, you, what they call your education and they then refer to that as formal. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so, uh, and I thought that would be a problem to me. And uh, then when I came out of the Air Force, my dad managed a small lumber company and that was part of a much larger group. And uh, I was hired by the larger group and I ended up in that auditing department and became fairly stepped up in the ranks already when I was 24 years old, 23 years old. I uh, uh, was already an assistant manager of a plant and that should not really happen. Mm. So a lot of people said, well, it's because of his dad, right? So. Uh, and, but I was still struggling with the failure of mm -hmm. that. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and I, I, because of the liberation by the Canadians, my dream was always to go mm -hmm. to Canada, the land of my heroes. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and then the other part was because I grew up in lumber, is to, I dreamed about building my own lumber mill. Mm -hmm. And then the other part was very important is that 
I, I wanted to kind of, in a way, not punish myself, but I felt that I failed mm -hmm. and I had to start anew. Mm -hmm. So I left Amsterdam. I didn't tell my parents about that. I had applied to emigrate. I went to the Canadian Embassy and then Hague. I said, I want to go to Canada as a landed emigrant. They allowed me to go. I didn't want any uh, sponsors. Somehow they mm -hmm. were okay with that. And within three weeks, mm -hmm. I would be leaving. And so I told my parents about it a week before I would go. And, uh, you know, that was traumatic to a certain extent, mm -hmm. but uh, mm -hmm. I had to do this. So I left mm -hmm. with one suitcase, $150, and, and couldn't speak the language, didn't know a soul, didn't have a job. Then came to Montreal, the train to mm -hmm. Vancouver. Mm -hmm. that, fortunately, I ran into a German guy that, uh, in Vancouver, and I told him what I wanted to do. I could speak some German, and I wanted to build a lumber mill, and he said, Prince George. 1965, that's where you have to go. Mm. So, and then I arrived in Prince George in uh, July of 1965. Uh, I, I had uh, counted my money, I had $25.47, and uh, you know, and uh, no job, and uh, didn't know a so soul, couldn't speak the language. But then I started to, and I knew that I would go back either successful or in a box. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, and, and then it started my journey of starting as a cleaner man, then a lumber pilot, and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. You know, but very quickly, within a year and a half, mm -hmm. after I came here, I was superintendent of a, a lumber mill, one of the largest ones here. Mm -hmm. And then within two years, I was part shareholder in a lumber mill in Watson Lake, Yukon, mm -hmm. <laughs> Watson Lake Lumber. And, and I owned a motel within two years. You know, when I, when I hear that, it's so interesting because this, um, sometimes that feel, that feel, that deep seated feeling of failure is the thing that really motivates a person. Yeah. And so it can be a negative in that yeah. it becomes a story or yeah. a narrative. And yeah. that's my specialty is, is what's called narrative therapy. So it's what are the stories that we tell ourselves or how we construct our orientation around the world. Yeah. And then we live up to those stories. That's why yeah. language is so important to me. But for you, that feeling of like underneath it all, maybe that shame of failing grade seven. Yeah. You said three times. Yeah. Right. Failing grade three, you know, coming from the experiences that you did, that there's turning that failure into drive. Yeah. Right. And there's exactly. a fine line between turning something into drive and then giving over and believing that you can't. Exactly. One of the things that can happen with really successful people is they can have a ton of success and accumulate, you know, many good things, but it can always live within them that fear of scarcity, yeah. that worry that things could go back. Yeah. And sometimes that can really drive us, but it can also um, be challenging too. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, it does to a certain extent. So where, what kind of unlocked it is the reading against all odds, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, against the driven by distraction, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I knew now that it was uh, ADHD. Mm -hmm. You better get Gabor Mate on your podcast. You would love to talk to him. Yeah. 
<laughs> so and uh, you know the uh, and so from there on in uh, already by the time I had that I already had the lumber mill here mm -hmm. and but I still had issues that I was dealing with mm -hmm. and uh, the other thing that was very important to me and and uh, you know uh, and and you are very special in that field in particular. Uh, I was not a good communicator, mm -hmm. very self-conscious in all of those things. And mm -hmm. then what happened is a couple of times I got in situations where because of the mill that I had and all the other things that I had to communicate to a number of people and that didn't go well. And I would freeze up, mm. and then, mm -hmm. uh, the, then my sister-in-law mm -hmm. dragged me to Toastmasters, mm -hmm. and I was part of Toastmasters for ten years. Rose to the highest level mm -hmm. in Toastmasters, became a distinguished Toastmaster, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, and since the time I've done a lot of public speaking, mm -hmm. and I'm very very active, but. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that was another critical point mm -hmm. of gaining the self-confidence, mm -hmm. and then, uh, uh, obviously, on the business side, we've been mm -hmm. uh, very successful. And mm -hmm. uh, and the other part I find it so interesting about it that, although I'm much more public about it now in terms of my lack of formal education, uh, uh, is that uh, uh, you know I talk about it more now and. Uh, uh, and I always say nobody, nobody in the 57 years that I've been in Canada ever asked me, okay, John, where are your diplomas? Mm -hmm. <laughs> nobody did ever. You know. Well, you know, education is so many things. And yet in the culture that we live in, we tend to privilege and prioritize something we call formal education. but. You know, I'm Indigenous, I'm a Métis, I'm a citizen of the Métis Nation of British Columbia. I'm originally, you know, born of the Métis Nation in Saskatchewan. And many of the people that I grew up with, um, including my grandmother, who just passed away on Monday at 93 years old. Oh, so too. Yeah, thank yeah. you. She was a beautiful lady. Um, yeah. Did not have a formal education. She actually went to residential school. Yeah. But her knowledge and her way of knowing and her wisdom was profound. Yeah. And so I think it's really important that while I have pursued a lot of academics because I thought I couldn't and then I figured out I could and then I just wanted more, yeah. the truth is is that the knowledge that all of us have in, in the experiences that we have, that lived experience, really needs to be as elevated and privileged. And so if anybody is out there that thinks, you know, I don't have this and I don't have that, that's bullshit because quite frankly, you have lived experience in your area, and that's what really counts. Exactly. But in the culture that we're in, you know, I have this, I love this work by Johan Hari. Um, I should send you it, you would love it too. He's a researcher and a communicator, and he talks about how in the culture that we have, we have junk food, and then we have junk values. Yeah. And those junk values are the things that tell us we're not enough, we're not good enough, we're not smart exactly. enough, we need to consume yeah. more, we, sh you know, we drink, we yeah. eat, we, we numb with certain behaviors, yeah. we're addicted to social media. Yeah. Like all of these things are the junk values. And I think yeah. one of them is, is the privilege and the classism yeah. around education. And let's yeah. face it, if you live in this country and you have had access to education, even if you've had to work hard for it and get a yeah. student loan and everything else, that's still privilege. Yeah. There's people 
not one block from here that have never had that opportunity. Exactly. But they have wisdom and they have skills. Yeah. And we would be right to be better servicing those people. Exactly. And including them in decision making. Yeah. You know, I chair the Prince George Community Foundation. Yes. I'm the first uh, female Indigenous chair of the organization. It's yes. now 27 years old. Um, and, you know, we're doing a lot of work and thinking broadly about how do we include all voices in the foundation and the work that we do. Yeah. You know, we're no, philanthropy is no different than the corporate sector, than right. in banking and et cetera, yeah. in that it's been predominantly white Western voices that have been at the table with power. Yeah. And so shifting the power to be more inclusive of people of multiple backgrounds, of yes. lived experience. Yes is really what we need to be focused on. And so yeah, we're no doing Christian. a lot of that work. And I, just when you mentioned education, it really made me think about the value of that. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, then, and I feel the same as you do in terms of, uh, and I, I would say, uh, uh, you know, the formal education doesn't mean lack of education. Uh, is that what I see now is more people, uh, are becoming much more sensitive to, uh, different learning styles that mm -hmm. people have mm -hmm. that are equally as effective in whatever they want to do in the future. Mm -hmm. If I look at, uh, <clears throat> and I have no particular <clears throat> hang-ups about mm -hmm. my education or the mm -hmm. lack thereof in the formal setting, but uh, to communicate that to others mm -hmm. is important, I mm -hmm. believe, mm -hmm. and uh, saying what can we do to uh, you know, to have more people feeling mm -hmm. first and in, in foremost having confidence that mm -hmm. they're okay, you know, and and, oh, and yeah. who they are, mm -hmm. what they are. <clears throat> what you were saying is that uh, the indigenous uh, community, uh, uh, Métis, and and uh, for me being uh, a foreigner in 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 a sense, uh, you know, the uh, uh, I believe that having respect for anybody and everybody I find unique in Canada mm -hmm. more so than some of the parts that I came from mm -hmm. when I grew up it was uh, a lot of times by uh, you know my parents uh, parents were farm laborers mm -hmm. and they were not always looked at as mm -hmm. you know the mm -hmm. same mm -hmm. Yeah, to be respectful right. of all those others around us is mm -hmm. very, very important, I believe. You know, I, I think um, this is a great nation. I'm always incredibly thankful to be a Canadian. It's a privilege and it's an honor. And we have some work to do in Canada. We're not as inclusive as we ought to be. <coughs> we have a legacy that we're only now beginning to talk openly about, you know, within, within the Indigenous yeah. um, how it is that Indigenous peoples have been treated in this country. You know, just yesterday, uh, two more locations in Saskatchewan were um, identified and recovering. I use the word recovering because it's not finding. Our elders no. always knew that yeah. that was the case. Yeah. But, you know, this country has a lot of work to do. We, we are yeah. not as inclusive of immigrants, no. of first and second generation Canadians. Yeah. We, we privilege and prioritize predominantly white voices still today. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to be mindful of that yeah. and to think about the ways that we can be part of the Canada that serves all yeah. and not the Canada that was 
or that is somehow you know this fictitious mecca. I, I think that we need to we need to take our our glasses off and look at what's really happening. I, I agree with that. Uh, you know, we had the privilege of being part of the uh, Indigenous uh, Day. I saw that <laughs> with, with all, my friend Ivan. With, yeah, with yeah. Ivan and Wes. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and and uh, I got. Uh, and, and worked with them on the drumming and I saw that. Uh, you know so mm -hmm. and uh, you know and then uh, you know we did the uh, we had the orange shirts mm -hmm. and uh, you know it was kind of <laughs> comical so we uh, I forget now what date it was either Canada Day or the uh, uh, the the other one but uh, in any event we got uh, a whole lot of shirts I maybe over well over a hundred and so we took them down to the park and. So we had a lady taking him down for the park for us. We were going to hand him out of the uh, stage and we had already announced it. And then the lady that, uh, the young lady, not her fault, that uh, started to unload him out of her truck. By the time she had unloaded, all the shirts were gone. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> was commodity. wearing them. You know, so, uh, but uh, no, I, I uh, you know, I think to, be, to create the awareness mm -hmm. of... Uh, not don't look in that direction, but mm -hmm. saying, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to uh, uh, let's recognize it and, mm -hmm. and recognize it for what it is, you know, so. Uh, yeah. and, and I think that, you know, we are uniquely positioned here in this community. So the Prince George Foundation, Community Foundation, did a vital science study. It's a national yeah. study. It's from the Community Foundation of Canada. We sort of format based off of their guidance. And we did, we've done two, one in 2017 and one in 2019. And in both instances of that research, what we found here was our indigenous population was greater than 12% in our city. And that's really of the sample size, so it's probably much higher. But we also have, in the diversity of this community, other populations, right, that we, we need to engage with and connect with and, and learn and the richness from and all of the, that diversity makes us a richer um, more aware, more inclusive culture that's better for everyone. Yeah. So I really am sensitive to the importance and you know all the actions that I can take as an individual and the organizations that I serve. I'm also, um, you know, a director, uh, vice vice chair with the YMCA of Northern BC, and we're in the process of an amalgamation as part of a provincial movement. And we're f so focused through the Y movement as well as the Community Foundation on how do we better position for the future of our organizations that reflect everyone and providing services to everyone. And, you know, that's a framework that I bring into the work that I do with people every day. I think yeah. we all need to feel a sense of belonging. We all need yeah. to feel a sense of connection. Yeah. And when we do, we're better but then we're better parents and we're better spouses and yes. we're better community members yes, and no we give better. It. We're yeah. more connected. Yeah, and these no are the things that it. make it better. There's only us. upside. There's only an upside. Mr. Y, you, you, you're quite involved in it. As, as you know, we are quite involved in the Y as well. And I mm -hmm. always find it uh, an amazing organization that, uh, that is really not funded by anybody other than by donations. That's and, right, 100% uh, philanthropic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and, and does a lot more than but appears to be, uh, you know, the uh, the gym and all the other things far beyond that uh, are oh, very supportive of yeah. families. And, 
It, it's actually um, like the, the YMCA collectively is the largest social service provider in the province of British Columbia. So if you look at all the Ys that come together, they, they provide amazing social services. It's critical, critical infrastructure in the province of BC. Um, and as you mentioned, it is all you know, provided through philanthropic efforts. The, the Y movement supports children and families. It connects programs. And we've got the foundry just over here across the street. It has a, it's kind of like, um, uh, and if my friend Selen was here, I'd give him a poke, you know, Selen, I'll pay, but it's kind of like Canadian Tire. There was a time when they used to do their advertisements and they'd say, yeah. we're more than tires. It's kind of the why. The yeah, why yeah. is so much more than swim and gym, yeah, yeah. but you know, it still gets branded that way. Yeah. But it's, uh, it does really, really important critical infrastructure, social service development right here and, and yeah. actually all over Northern BC and, yeah. and then of course across the province. Yeah. The, uh, so, my, we can do two sessions. We may we have to do, do more than this. I tell you. Yeah. So before we end this one, mm -hmm. you know, tell me a little bit more about you and your mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you travel pretty much all over. I know you've been very, very active in many, many areas. Mm -hmm. And uh, but but you give me a brief overview. Sure. You you know. You did uh, a, a amazing accomplishments in terms of your studies and you know in how you went about it. But uh, you mm -hmm. you have amazing credentials and uh, uh, and you do many many things uh, in terms of counseling and all of those things. Well, the most important thing about me is I'm a mother and I yeah. have two children. I have a fifteen, almost fifteen year old, and fifteen and twelve girl and boy. Yeah. So a uh, daughter who's almost 15 and a son who's, who's 12. Yeah. Um, so that's the most important thing about me. Yeah. Um, and I'm married and um, I own and operate Momentum Coaching and Counseling Services. And I started that practice officially in 2018, but I've been working with people in a therapeutic way for over 20 years. Yeah. And I started the business because I was providing a lot of services and it just seemed like the natural thing to do to kind yeah. of, you know, structure it. And then when the pandemic hit, I sort of knew intuitively that there was going to be a, a serious demand for mental health services. Yeah. So I leaned in heavily into the service delivery of, of counseling, both for individuals and couples. And I would say right now about 80% of the work that I do is in counseling, about 20% is coaching. They're very different fields and they're yeah. regulated differently. So yeah. I am um, licensed and registered I'm here in the province of BC yeah. um, through a college that oversees my practice as a therapist. Um, and I really love the work because it's an honor to work with people and share space and time and story and yeah. to really understand and provide information and learn more about people and for them yeah. to learn about themselves. I don't offer advice. No. My job is to be a guide. You yeah. know, I, I guide the person decides where yeah. they want to go. Yeah. And I think that that's really powerful. Counseling's also been a part in my life really important. Yeah. You know, I struggled through a lot of early challenges, yeah. um, like we all do, struggled through an eating disorder, yeah. um, struggled through my own mental health challenges. So it was really formulative. And after I completed social work, then I was really interested in specializing. Yeah. Um, so that is mostly about, you know, the work that I do. Um, and, you know, we've, we've lived here in this community now. Um, I think going on 12 years yeah. and it's a great place to raise a family. You know, I love the outdoors. Yeah. I really do. It's amazing, you know, I love cross-country skiing and I love being at the lake in the summer. Um, so I also think that this is a really warm-hearted place. My clientele is actually all, really all across the country. Yeah. 
Um, I also really love the north. So I've done a lot of work in Nunavut and the north. Well, not a lot, but I've traveled in Nunavut. I've done yeah. a lot of work in the Northwest Territories. Yeah. Um, and I've always been fascinated with my time um, you know, working in those regions. Yeah. I feel like it's a really special part of the world with this incredible organic and natural wisdom that just comes through. And I've had some of my most blessed experiences um, in the north. But the clients that I work with are really all across the country. And I do have a great opportunity to travel across this country. But fast fact, I've done almost zero traveling, like real traveling. I've been almost everywhere in Canada. Um, but really, I've been to Scotland. I've been to England. I've been down to the U.S., a few states. But that's it. Because not in, you, you've not been in Holland. No, I haven't been Holland because you know what? When I was growing up, I was busy looking after my fa you know my family needed me at yeah. that time, and no. then you know life just goes on. So maybe one day I'll get to go to nice places. But my husband but, said, "Where do you want to go in the world? Like, where do you really want to go?" Yeah, and I was said, you know. Um, where I really, there's a library in Norway that's made of wood and it's supposed to look like a whale. Yeah. And he said like, of all the places you want to go to a cold place to a library, like we could do that here. Do I have to spend all the money to go to Norway? But maybe one day. Yeah. Let's do a podcast there. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> or in Holland. Yeah. So I really enjoyed uh, our discussion. Likewise. And like to have you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you.